1: And we're back for yet another week. It is the Late Kick Extra Podcast. I am Josh Pate. I am happy to have you with me. I was listening to myself last week, and the one thing that aggravated me is we take too long to get into the show. So forget all of it. You know how to get in touch with the email, joshpate706 at gmail.com, Twitter, at latekickjosh. Thank you so much for the five star reviews. If you haven't already, give us one. And now, less than a minute later, Let's dive right in. We've got the most loaded Late Kick Extra podcast that we have had to date, and we kick it off with this question. From Go Irish in the podcast review on Apple Podcast. Thank you, Go Irish. He says, who do you think is the next team that hasn't already won a college football playoff national championship to win their first? I think the answer here is Oklahoma. I've spoken about this within the last couple of months. Let me just reiterate, a lot of people's go-to default argument against this is, oh, Oklahoma doesn't play any defense. No, they haven't played good enough defense, but they haven't had Alex Grinch on campus for very long either. They just upped him, I saw right before I started recording, he got yet another raise, guys making well north of seven figures, well north of one, I think north of one and a half per year now. Two coordinated defense out there that's been very lackluster, hasn't been up to snuff, and as a result, they've been snuffed out. In college football playoff situations most recently against LSU but if you look at the roster being overturned I don't I don't know how people think this works but you don't hire someone and someone snaps their fingers in the background and you get the results it takes a little while they know if you can clearly see they know Lincoln Riley and his staff they know they got the right guy out there and people inside the coaching industry they all think he's gonna get the job done Everyone thinks that Alex Grinch is going to be or already is a top notch defensive coordinator. In time, he'll yield results at Oklahoma, and then they're not going anywhere offensively. So then you ask yourself do they get over that hump that it takes? Do they truly pull up to the big boy table that lets them go toe to toe with Alabama, go toe to toe with LSU the next time they get in one of those situations, and they put themselves in position to be in contention every year? I think the answer is yes. And I think your next first, so to speak, college football playoff national champion will be the Oklahoma Sooners. Next up, Dippy Dipperson. I've been hearing lots of hype about the Tanner Morgan, Rashad Bateman connection in Minnesota. Rondale Moore, David Bell, the one-two punch at Purdue. How realistic do you think it is that either the Gophers or Boilermakers leapfrog us, Wisconsin, this year based on their 2020 firepower only for them to lose to the Buckeyes 41-16 in Indianapolis? I almost think it'd be fun to see a first-time Big Ten West representative in what might be the most unorthodox year in history. Meanwhile, we retool around Graham Mertz for 2021. Now, I see where the head's at here. I've never had to apologize to someone for predicting their team to win, but I hate to tell you, I think it's Wisconsin again in that division this year. Now, everyone assumes that it's Jack Cohn again, and it just is what it is offensively for Wisconsin, and we're going to have to wait, like you said, until minimum 2021 in order for any kind of extension off this offense and what is quote-unquote typical for us right now. We'll see. You said 2020 was going to be unorthodox. I agree. I agree might it also be a team to team with Wisconsin being one of those teams that says, hey, what the heck? Let's take some chances this year. Let's take some risk this year. We got some production to replace with Jonathan Taylor gone. Maybe we don't think we quite have it even collectively at the running back spot. So maybe by default or maybe by necessity, whatever the case may be, maybe they feel the need to stretch that field just a little bit more than you or even I think they will. JTD next up. You've mentioned before about how schemes and formation come and go, specifically mentioning Jeremy Pruitt and, what do you know, Paul Crist and their more old school offensive approach. What scheme or formation would you like to see a major Power 5 team reintroduce and why? It's not an offensive style I'd like to see reintroduced. It's kind of already happened, what I'm about to say. I'm so glad that LSU finally adopted modern spread-based passing principles. It used to be that Alabama, it looked like they'd never do that, and then they did. And then it certainly looked like LSU would never do that, and now they have. And now you get to a point almost, and this is kind of going back to what you mentioned I was talking about earlier. It almost goes back to the point where since everyone seems to be doing it, even LSU, you may have a Jeremy Pruitt, and this still remains to be seen, but you may have a guy like Pruitt at Tennessee look around and say, wait a second, if everyone's spreading it out, and everyone's throwing the ball this much, and everyone's recruiting smaller linebackers to play in space as a result of that, might it be that the old bowling ball approach that used to be the norm down here, all of a sudden old is new again? Now you say this to coaches and they say no. Once progress happens and once evolution happens, you got to have some of those modernized elements or you're going to be left in the dust. And I agree with that. There's a big difference in working off a principle in an offense versus just having that be your entire offense. You can look at the way Jeremy Pruitt's trying to recruit right now, specifically at the running back position, and you can see what he's trying to put together roster-wise. And I don't necessarily think it's a mirror image of what they're doing at Alabama or LSU. Moses, 1988, next up. Hey, Josh, my buddy is a diehard Michigan fan. I asked him about Damon Payne leaving the state. That's a five-star defensive lineman committed to Alabama this past week. He explained that Belleville High School staff and Michigan staff hate each other, and Michigan was never in the running. My opinion is that it is very problematic when the number one defensive tackle in the state is not even interested in your team, in this case being Michigan, how big of a deal is it for Michigan and their perception nationally? Well, it wasn't good. And you are right. He was never considering Michigan, at least down the stretch of his recruitment, in any way. It was kind of weird that he was down to Alabama and Kentucky and Arizona State. Now, I know what a lot of people thought about that. A lot of people thought, wait a second, something doesn't pass the smell test here. Because shouldn't Ohio State and Michigan, shouldn't all the big northern powers at least be finalists? Something must be up. That wasn't the case. Checked in with a lot of our national guys, and that just wasn't the case. He was just a guy who was not interested in offers, and he had committable offers from Michigan, from Ohio State, wanted to get out of that region. And Alabama led for a long time, Alabama lands him, but he was a guy who just had some different things on his radar. As for Michigan and whether it's problematic, yeah, it's not ideal, certainly. But Let's not forget what they do have committed right now. And that's a five-star quarterback in J.J. McCarthy. They have landed some big-time pieces at receiver. Look for them to continue that trend, hopefully. And if they do that, I mean, we're not looking at Michigan defensively and saying there has been the Achilles heel. Now, maybe they've struggled to have elite team speed defensively against the best of the best, like Ohio State, but that's not ultimately what's held them back as a program. It's been offense, and if they get offense rectified and three years from now they're humming on offense, I don't know that we're going to look at Michigan and say, boy, you know what's really holding them back. Remember a few years back when they didn't land Damon Payne? I don't think that's what we're going to be saying. We'll see. Time will tell there. All right, Irish Politico next up. He says, "Uh, I brought two of those T-shirts from the company you talked about. And I highly recommend them to anyone. Now, listen, I would drop the name of the company again. But to be honest with you, they didn't get in touch with us about an advertising deal. So, no, there's just a certain really, really good T-shirt company out there that could work with us if they wanted to. I'm glad I hooked you up, though, Irish Politico. He continues. On a podcast I was listening to elsewhere recently, they said there's a chance FCS teams and other fall sports could be canceled, leaving FBS football as sort of the last man standing. Is there a world where Trey Lance, and that is a very highly sought after by NFL scouts quarterback at North Dakota State, is there a chance or is there a world where Trey Lance has an opportunity to get a waiver to play elsewhere? Lastly, which FBS team would you like to see him play for? Well, I would love to park him at Penn State this year. I'd love to park him at Michigan this year. I'd love to park him at Notre Dame. This year, those are three programs. Anyone who listens to this program, this podcast, you know that I always go to those programs as being an elite quarterback away from really kicking the snowball down the hill. Having said that, I have no clue how that would work. And I don't know that it would be in Trey Lance's best interest to try and throw together a senior year somewhere he never expected to be. He's a guy who NFL scouts look at right now. If he didn't play another down of college ball and they think he's a first round talent. So I don't know that it's in his best interest to try and explore that. Now, it would be in our best interest. We'd love to see it. Tennessee Tar Heel is next up. I'm a UNC fan. I've been watching videos recently of all the new facilities we have. One thing I noticed, that Air Jordan logo is everywhere. I understand it's great to have such a strong partnership with a national brand, but I have to wonder if it could be a turnoff for some recruits because it perpetuates the stereotype of UNC being a basketball school. Is there merit to this concern? Or am I just paranoid? Well, I don't know if I'd go as far as to say you're paranoid, but there's not much merit to it. The Jordan brand is not a basketball brand. The Jordan brand is now just a premier sports brand. Listen, they do it at Michigan, and Michigan is certainly a football first school, and they got that logo all over the place. Now, it's understandable why Carolina would pretty much tattoo it everywhere they can, including lick and stick style on your grandma's forehead if she'll allow it. He went there. He is an institution within the institution. But so, But I would suggest it's the opposite. I would suggest it is a selling point. And also, I want you to think about this. Even just from the, ooh, does being a basketball school turn football recruits off perspective, I've always noticed there's a divide. College football fans versus the recruits that you are trying to attract. I want you to think about this for just a second. Most rabid basketball fans, most rabid college basketball fans also are rabid college football fans of any given university. Not every rabid college football fan is also a rabid college basketball fan. There is a sidewalk factor, and that just means fans that didn't necessarily attend the university. And since football is a more popular sport in America, you have naturally more sidewalk football fans than you do basketball fans. Think University of Alabama. Think University of Georgia. A lot of programs down south have way more football fans than they do basketball fans. That's not the case with your recruits. Most kids you're recruiting to play football also play basketball. Most of them play pretty much every sport they can, basketball included, and they love basketball. So even if you were to be recruiting a guy to North Carolina and the basketball program is humming right along like it usually is, that's great. You get to take him into a charged environment first off, and you get to show him the passion that the community has for athletics in general. But secondly, that Jordan brand, It may not mean a lot to a 46-year-old dude who's just been a lifelong football fan of North Carolina or Auburn or Arkansas, but let me tell you what it does mean something to. It means something to the group that you're trying to get in there to help you win ball games on the field, and that is what matters. That's what drives the bus in those decisions. Owen, next up, best player you've seen in the past decade that did not win a Heisman. That one's easy for me. That's Indomitian Sioux. I think he was the runner-up in 09. I guess that's a little after a decade ago. I'm going Indomitian Sioux anyway. Indomitian Sioux was one of the most dominant football players, the most dominant athletes, college or pro, that I've ever watched. He was a man among boys in the Big 12. When he played at Nebraska... I remember watching the Big 12 championship game that Texas actually ended up winning. You're talking about a conference championship game against the team that's going to go on to the national championship game. They had no answer for him. It was like that all year. He just ragdolled interior lineman game after game all year. And I think Mark Ingram won it that season. And Mark Ingram had a great year. Very likable. Love Mark Ingram. I didn't think he was the most dominant player in America that year. I thought and Sue was, but you know how voters feel about defensive players winning Heismans. That's one of the many reasons uh, to this day. I don't think we have even taken time to answer a Heisman question on this podcast. Until now, of course. Next up, Lula Bear. Mason Smith, Corey Foreman, package deal. Is there any smoke coming from that little bit of fire, or am I seeing the fog? of being an lsu fan the mason smith is an elite defensive lineman he is from louisiana i think he will commit to lsu cory foreman is also a five-star guy but he is from california now if this is a guy who doesn't stay out west then of course there are the usual suspects he was committed to clemson very rare decommitment from clemson for a long time steve wolfong who i do the wolfong recruiting whip around with every week on the 24 7 sports youtube channel subscribe if you haven't already please Steve was intimating that if he goes to the SEC Georgia is the presumed leader and this last recording I did with Steve right before he went on I think the first vacation he's ever taken he said you know I think that he may still go to the SEC but I'm leaning more towards LSU now and listen he was on the seesaw about changing his crystal ball pick so I think that there is a lot of smoke to this I think there's got to be a fire somewhere Lula Bear gotta be one somewhere I was doing radio down in Ruston, actually, the other day with Sean Fox and the guys down there. And I said, I'd put the percentage chance above 50. So you got to like those odds. Next up, Jared. A month or two ago, I was laughing right along with you when people pointed to programs like Bama and Georgia. They didn't have a lot of commits. And thus, they didn't think they'd finish very well in recruiting. Time has passed. Alabama has kicked their recruiting into typical Alabama gear. But Georgia is still sitting there with only 10 commits. Is there a legitimate reason to worry about Georgia's recruiting this year, or am I just being a spoiled fan who worries too much? Well, if you're talking about finishing top three, yeah, there's reason to worry. I don't think Georgia will finish top three in recruiting this year. I think they'll struggle to finish top five. Struggle in sort of italics. It is a very first world problem to worry if you're only going to finish sixth or seventh. There have been a lot of 50-50 battles that have gone against them, that they're used to going their way. I don't think there's any one reason. There are a number of reasons speculated behind the scenes, and there's varying degrees of validity to it, but here's the bottom line. The bottom line is, when we went into quarantine and when everything got thrown for a loop, it was a given that everyone had to change their game plans for pretty much everything, and some staffs were going to be ahead of a curve more than others. Now, we didn't know how or who, but we knew it just was going to be. Well, as it turns out, a program like Georgia, as much as they had the early signing period figured out before everybody a couple of cycles ago, if you remember that, well, they've been behind the curve on this. They haven't done a great job so far on this. It appears that they've been a little behind the curve. So that is easily understandable. But at the same time, you got to hope if you're a Georgia fan, you get those on-campus visits at some point, And that's very up in the air right now. But you hope you can get kids on campus this fall. And you can sell the way that you're used to selling. That is your recruiting wheelhouse. If you know Georgia recruiting, that is your recruiting wheelhouse. And you hadn't been able to do it. And you look at the board now. If you're not flipping five or six guys, who else is really out there that's going to vault you up above some of these teams ahead of you into the top four, top three? I don't know necessarily that it's attainable at this point. One more Georgia question here from Alabama Sucks. Is that a real first and last? I don't know. Anyway, what effect will each quarterback on Georgia's roster have on the rest of the team if they're the starter? Uh, You know, I don't know this firsthand, and I don't like the mentality that I'm about to echo, but I had someone tell me the other day, again, I want to tell you uh, explicitly, I don't endorse this, but I had it said to me, so I'll just repeat it to you. Someone who knows Georgia pretty well said that, you know, Jamie Newman is brought over there as a grad transfer, and you know no one says okay we're guaranteeing you the job but it was an unspoken that it's pretty much your job and then they go get JT Daniels what if JT Daniels is eligible okay well now he's eligible so what if he ends up starting what does that do to a portion of the locker room that is attached themselves to Daniels and you can see quickly why I don't endorse this line of thinking but I guess you have to admit there is this outside chance if JT Daniels wins the job. Now, if he wins the job to me, that just means good. You had competition. He was the best guy for the job, so be it. But there is another camp out there, and that camp would say you got a lot of people who are going to think Jamie Newman was misled and lied to and done wrong. Now, I want to repeat for the last time, I, I can't be explicit enough on this. I'm not on board with that, but I think some people would suggest it. So if... There is an effect on the locker room. Potentially, I think that would be it. Best case, there is no effect. And players are in practice every day. So the best quarterback in practice is going to be the guy that they start. Hopefully, players have seen that and they're on board with it. Next up, what does the ACC need to do to become a more respected conference in football? Well, win more. And then what you have to do to win more? Well, you got to invest more. This is always the Achilles heel to me. This is the Achilles heel. You either get Miami and Florida State and Virginia Tech simultaneously humming, or you have new contenders emerge like North Carolina's trying to do, and North Carolina can't do it on their own. But if you really don't have that, Virginia could be another program that fits that description. But if you don't have that, if you go up and down the list in the Big Ten or the SEC, you get seven or eight deep of programs that are fully invested in football. Do you go that deep in the ACC? You go to Clemson. You can go to Florida State, even though they've been a mess. At least you know, I mean, those folks are all in on football. Miami, Virginia Tech. But, you know, how much deeper are we going there? To where you watch. Now, I'm not saying they don't care. I'm saying when you turn on Syracuse, do you watch that product and say, those folks are the Northeastern equivalent of Texas A&M or Auburn. I don't. I don't see it like that. It's an interesting place to go play. Uh, it's it's a dangerous place. Dino Babers has done a great job with the program. But what we're talking about here is collectively is, you're asking me, essentially, how do you get that conference back on par with the other big boys? That's not an easy fix. And that's part of what we're talking about. Passion leads to investment Leads to raised expectations, leads to not settling till you meet the expectations. I just don't know that they have that pressure cooker turned up in the ACC like they do in a conference like the SEC, for example. Uh, Gators are stupid is back for a third straight week in the podcast review section. And Gators are stupid says, do you think that the Big 12 SEC and ACC will find a way to have non-conference games allowed between the three? Yes but I don't know how it's going to happen. But yes, I do believe that they'll find a way to do that. Next up, JS Ramos04. Which first coach do you think will be the most successful in the upcoming season? This is something that I plan on talking about more in probably a couple of features in August. So stay tuned for that one. Jake R. CEO. Next up, if I remember correctly... You've been asked twice about what Auburn needs to do to become a Tier 1 program. Now, both times you have correctly noted the difficulty of Auburn's schedule and there simply not being enough seats at the table in the SEC West. However, these are external factors, not internal to Auburn. What are the internal factors that should be improved upon to have a seat at the Tier 1 table? Good question. I think they're in the process of happening. For a long time, it peeved me off to no end. Being close to Auburn, being in Columbus down there, I was right in Auburn's backyard. And one of the things that aggravated me, and I had this to a degree with Georgia and Mark Richt, too. Nick Saban's been at Alabama for over a decade now. And both of those programs, and pretty much everyone else in the SEC, they measure themselves to Alabama. And if you're not meeting Alabama, which no one down there has been, Then everyone's upset and they want to know why aren't you this? Why aren't you that? So at Auburn, naturally, that's your biggest rival. So Malzahn was being and is being held to that standard. But what was aggravating me is, you know, they were dragging their feet on something like a new football only facility. This is the kind of stuff Nick Saban gets a yes to before he eats his second bowl of oatmeal for breakfast in Tuscaloosa. And they drugged their feet forever down there. And finally, They got the wheels in motion and then COVID comes in and construction gets delayed a little bit, but they're in the process of their football only facility going up down there. That's an example, just an example of the kind of stuff that if you want to talk about overtaking someone that's at the big boy table and taking their spot. Well, you got to do what they've done. And I'm not just talking about winning. I'm talking about making the investment year in and year out that it takes to win. And the thing about it is you can't just do something in 2013 and then sit back and relax and you know prop your feet up and say, okay, we're there now. No, man, you got to keep doing it year after year. If you do something in 2013, it's old in 2017. You got to keep investing. You got to keep overturning. You got to keep freshening up and polishing. That's what it takes. And I just haven't gotten the feeling they've always been like that there as as long as Malzahn's been there. And the reason is simple. You need money to do these things. And some of the big money folks at Auburn have never viewed Gus Malzahn as the long-term answer. And they've been hesitant to come off that hip pocket. Now, I cannot sit here and tell someone how to spend their money. I can't do that. But the bottom line is, if you just zoom it out from 50,000 feet, you realize you got to get it figured out one way or the other. If he's not the guy, then find the guy. Now, I think he is the guy. I think he's very underrated. But if he's not, and your donors are telling you, we're not going to do what you need us to do unless you get us our guy, well, show us your guy, get him in here, and then let's get the ball rolling. They finally got that ball rolling a little bit. So again, I'm kind of in the... Let's make sure it's it's a continuous function and not just, all right, we gave you this one thing, now we're going to stand pat for five years and see what you can do with it. Fan favorite in the podcast review. Is it really just the fluky win against Ohio State and stumbling in the Big Ten title that puts James Franklin... In all the top coach in the Big Ten conversations and allows the media to gain clicks on Harbaugh on negative stories, Franklin has a very similar record against top teams and an equally bad record, especially on the road against Harbaugh, and a losing record to Michigan. So I have a hard time getting the praise for Franklin versus the hate for Harbaugh. I don't have any hate for Jim Harbaugh here. I have not overly praised James Franklin, but I will tell you this. I think people's praise for James Franklin is twofold. Number one, they saw him make Vanderbilt football matter, which is a minor miracle. And number two, they saw the door he entered at Penn State. And let's again remember the context. What was happening? What had just happened at Penn State? And what was handed down, sanctions, because of what just happened at Penn State? When's the last time you talked about that? This is, keep in mind, something that could have crippled that program for three decades. When's the last time you talked about that scandal at Penn State and the scholarships that got taken away? You're not talking about it anymore. That's a that's a dynamite job of leadership. That is a great job by a head coach. They haven't won a national championship, but you can do a heck of a job of coaching and fall short of winning a national championship. Bottom line is he walked in there and had a set of circumstances dropped in his lap that made what you're being paid irrelevant. You could be paid $100 million a year for all I care. And pretty much everyone is ill-equipped to handle that. But yet he's done a good job with it. And they have resuscitated the brand of Penn State football to where less than 10 years later, that's not that long ago that that stuff happened. No one's talking about it. I think they've done a great job up there. That's why I think he gets the credit, independent of what anyone says about Jim Harbaugh. Another quick reminder, if you will, just take two seconds, hit those five stars, give us a five-star review. We're over 340, I wanna say, at last check. So I would just love to get to 1,000, 1,000. When you say you have a 1,000 of something, oh, that's really impressive. At 300, something's impressive, but let's get to 1,000, those five-star reviews. Also, they get us a shout-out in the national editorial meeting. It impresses everyone. So help me help myself is what I'm asking you to do. And I don't think that that is too much to ask, do you? Let's move it on. I don't know what this poster's name is because I just think he typed it with his elbows. Don't really think he cared to have his name expressed, but here's what he did say. I was wondering what you think about the Palmetto prospects wanting to stay home in Miami because of COVID instead of going to the clearly better program in Gainesville. (laughs) I love that. This is the first time I've read this question. Lastly, if and when do you think Florida or when and if do you think Florida will become a tier one playoff team? All right, let me delicately answer this. I had a phone conversation today about my Florida hatred that doesn't exist. I actually want Florida to be great, but they're not. And I call them on it. And so I am accused by some of being a Florida hater. The answer to the second part is, I don't know that Florida is going to become a Tier 1 playoff team. Tier 1 and playoff team are two different things, first off. Secondly, a Tier 1 is a program. That is a program metric that I talk about team and program a team is one year version of a program you got to do it more than one year to be in tier one as a program secondly as for this whole palmetto five as they are referred to and that's a bunch of guys from the same high school down there elite guys that a lot of people want staying home uh whatever it is if it's covid if it's just manny diaz and his staff doing what it takes to keep guys home and selling them on a vision of what miami could be as opposed to what they are I don't care how they're doing it. If they get it done, it's a big deal. And I was talking about this on Late Kick Live the other night on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. There's been a lot of angst and bitterness down there, rightfully so. I would feel the same way if I were a Miami or a Florida or an FSU fan and I was watching Ohio State come in here or Alabama or Clemson come in here and take my players. But what's really going to set Florida fans off is if Miami happens to be the program that has been in disarray, and they've been worse than you on the field. You're right. But what if they end up being the program that figures out how to keep kids in state before you do, even though you're outperforming them on the field right now? That, if I'm a Florida Gator fan, it would keep me up at night for lack of being able to say more forceful things on the podcast. And so that's what I'm paying attention to right now. Because if that does happen, I mean, they got... They just landed James Williams verbally, and now we're looking at Jason Marshall, a five-star corner from down there. I'm looking at a bunch of guys in South Florida. If they do get that ball rolling, and a lot of folks close to Miami really feel this momentum that normally you feel locally before you feel it nationally. So if you guys are right on this, it's going to be a really big deal. Will be a really big deal. Next up, Georgia versus everybody. I'm a Georgia fan, I believe George Pickens has the ability to be an elite wide receiver with the quarterback talent we have coming. What are your thoughts on him? I agree with you. I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, George Pickens last year had flashes and it was flashes or they were flashes that made you think, oh boy, if they had a more consistent passing game, if they had a more advanced passing game, if George Pickens was playing for LSU or he's playing for Alabama in their current offense, what would he look like? That's what George Pickens had folks saying last year. So your question is basically, hey, if George's offense is becoming that, what could George Pickens be? And the answer is one of the best receivers in the country. He was that coming out of high school. He could be that in college. DT Salmond. What do you think it will take for Tennessee to be dominant again like they were in the 90s? You got to be able to recruit at an elite level, the six hour radius around Knoxville. You've got to... Get your fair share out of the Carolinas, out of Atlanta, and you got to really do business in Alabama. Be able to take guys like Dylan Brooks, for example, out of Roanoke that you currently have verbally committed. That's a big deal. Dip into Florida, just like all the other big boys do. But you got to, since you don't have a dynamite in-state crop of talent, although the in-state product in Tennessee has been on the rise, I will admit that, you got to do better out of state. And that's not to say that they won't. That's what it's going to take. They've got to build a championship caliber roster. And this year, uh, preferably, they need to beat one of the big boys. And the big boys that they play this year, if they play their full schedule, would be Oklahoma, Alabama, Georgia, or Florida. Take one of them down. Finish top 10 again in recruiting. You're on your way. Chunky MS. I used to live in Columbus, Georgia. I used to watch you on WLTZ. I thought... Oh, that's a bunch of praise that I don't need to read. People think I'm making it up, but I appreciate it. So I have a question for you that goes back to your days in Columbus. What was your co-host's name? For the life of me, I can't remember his name. Do you have any good stories you're willing to share about the early days of the show? Yes. I appreciate you asking this. Back in the 2010, 11, 12, I was trying to get in front of any live microphone I could. And so I was doing local radio at the ESPN radio affiliate there in Columbus, WIOL, 1580, The Zone, And one day, the host got sick, I was put in the chair, rest is history, but there was a guy who came in there who, unbeknownst to me, had also been coming in to observe. His name was Jonathan Rivers. Walked on at Auburn, he had played at Shaw High School there in Columbus, and he and I became best friends. I told him, I called him later that week, because I had met him for the first time, and I told him, I remember where I was. I was at the intersection of Double Churches Road and Veterans Parkway on the north side of Columbus. And he answered his phone, and I said, I don't have any opportunity for you. I don't even have anything myself. But if I ever get the opportunity, I'm calling you. Well, a few years later, a general manager from a TV station has the bright idea to give me my own college football TV show. So I called Jonathan Rivers. And we put together Football Nightly Down South, which aired for a couple of years there in Columbus at 10 o'clock Eastern time every night. And we had some of the most fun that we've ever had. We were also doing a radio show over at the college there, Columbus State University, on the corner of 9th and Broad. We did it every Friday night. They gave us three hours of airtime, And I used it to perfect my format. No one could hear us. The range probably wasn't more than two blocks away from the station, but it was repetition that was so valuable. We were on the corner of 9th and Broad there, an all glass studio. Broadway's where all the bars are. We were at 10 o'clock Friday nights downtown. You could not imagine a more perfect image of Sodom and Gomorrah happening right out on the street as we're trying to do a nice, straight-laced, button-down college football show. And they have a freight line that does what is in the train industry called street running. It's where the train goes right down the middle of the road instead of you know a typical railroad crossing. So the trains would send down to one of the local depots down the line, they would send a train out sometime in the middle of our show and they would lay on the horn and it was live, so the horn would just be on air. But they would have to, I kid you not, they'd have to slam on the brakes of these trains because folks would be plastered just walking, oblivious to the fact that there was a train 20 yards from them out in the middle of the road. And we're watching all this as we're trying to broadcast live. That prepared me for life in the news industry and live shots out in the field and the stuff that would distract most people oh i was set because i had already watched people almost get hit by trains while they were plastered drunk from a radio studio so if i could maintain composure during those times i could do it in any time next up is ricky r question for you mr pate what is your favorite press box food which school has the best medium menu Uh, Alabama does the best overall menu because they vary their dishes. They had an ice sculpture in there one day. That's not a joke. They had an ice. At this, this point, some of these programs just show off. But they always have a couple of meat carving stations there. Really good food. Way more than they should be feeding media. But I'm not turning it down. But I will say this. My favorite is LSU because LSU serves a lot of local cuisine. Some of it I don't know how to pronounce. Some of it I don't know what it is, but I know it's good. So much so that if you've seen that video that's been on Twitter this past week where someone puts a bunch of bread out in the middle of a group of monkeys, and the monkeys come one by one, and the first few monkeys, like a dozen of them, they just take one piece of bread. But there's this one monkey in the back. He's me. He waits for all the other monkeys to take one piece of bread, and then he walks up and takes like seven or eight of them. Every LSU game, even if I've been on the field the whole game, after press conferences, I go up like 47 stories up to the press box at LSU, which is just below cloud level. And I load up because they put fresh food out there at the end of the game. And I load up and I'm not even embarrassed about it. I walk out of there like I'm leaving Golden Corral and I got a box to go. And it lasts me until I get to about New Orleans. And I've probably still got about four or five hours on the drive home to Columbus. That's where I would have been going the last time I was down there. But LSU does a good job. Bama does a good job. Tennessee, I think, gives away whole pizzas to media. But you got to get in there pretty quickly. Um, But I'll tell you, at the bowl games, man, we were down at the Citrus Bowl this past year. They had a gourmet taco bar that didn't sound like a big deal to me until I went to the gourmet taco bar. I didn't know about the flavoring and the sweetness that is baked into some of the gourmet taco shells, mainly because I didn't know gourmet taco shells existed. So there's been a lot of good food eaten just in the past year by yours truly. Oh, by the way, I like the football games too. All right, next up. Good stuff there. Next up, Chris13. Here's something I've been grappling with lately. How difficult is it for a team to have both an elite offense and defense? What are the best circumstances for that to happen under? Well, to me, the best mixture is kind of like LSU, speak of the devil, had this last year. They had, obviously, an elite offense. Everyone started hating on their defense because they they had this weird game against Vanderbilt early in the year where a lot of players were out, and Vanderbilt scored some non-offensive touchdowns, and people lazily looked at the number Vanderbilt put up and said, oh, LSU must suck defensively. No, they didn't at all. They ended up being really good defensively. Look at the product that was on the field in the playoffs, by the way. Did that suck? No, it did not. But what they were is it wasn't just this great wall of China or Baton Rouge, if you will, that was impenetrable. They were opportunistic. They were ball hawking. They harassed the quarterback. And basically, they knew they could take chances because their offense was affording them that opportunity. That's the kind of quote unquote elite defense that you pair with a top notch offense. You don't have to go into it knowing you can't give up more than 16 points. So you know you can take some chances. Uh, That, to me, if I'm. Building, you know, kind of a fantasy college football team for me as a fan. That's the kind of team that I want to watch. Oh, you know what? Before I forget, a quick reminder. I see a few of the comments now that I meant to address earlier. So a lot of you are headed to college, in college, just out of college, and you ask for general advice, you know, which direction you should go, just this and that, odds and ends, feedback, etc. So I told you that, About once a month, I've been doing this for a while, I'll organize a sort of group Zoom session. You want in, just email me. I'll send you the link, joshpate706 at gmail.com. Got one of those coming up, so not gonna waste too much time on it here. It's the podcast for a reason. We're here to talk about college football, but if you do want in on that, just hit me up, let me know. We continue here from Josh, actually. I have several military friends who are Florida fans. For some reason, I'm getting attacked in group texts about how much better Dan Mullen is and how Kyle Trask is the next Tua. I really don't believe people said that, Josh. I'm going to have to get you to copy and paste that one for me. Is my reply to these criticisms way too out there? My reply is Kirby Smart versus every active head coach is look at where the coaches were at this exact point in Kirby's career. Kirby is the second best active head coach to this point in his career behind Ryan Day, Saban at the five-year mark, Kirby's better. Mullen, Kirby by a mile. He is still fairly new compared to the coaches they compare him to. This is a good point. I have spoken about this. It's something that's always important to remember. Let's use an example. When talking about how young Kirby Smart is as a head coach, he's less than five years in as a head coach. Take the Justin Fields Jake Fromm situation. If you feel like he bungled that, and it's way more nuanced and in depth than that, but if you just feel like he bungled that, and it's inexcusable, really? How young is he as a head coach? Listen, there is no shortcut for learning all the lessons. You may have a shortcut now to getting a premier job at a younger age than you used to be able to, and the advances in digital technology allow you to expose yourself to thousands more repetitions on game film than you used to have watched, but learning how to manage people It doesn't get any easier. In fact, I would argue it's gotten more nuanced and complex these days. But you don't get to learn the tough lessons out of the spotlight when your first job is Georgia. Like you said with Saban or guys, you know, back in the day, yeah, their first job five years in, they were learning those lessons at places like, as I've mentioned, and got respect from for Toledo, Bowling Green, Kent State, And so no one really cared that you screwed up there nationally. No one really cared. No one at the Los Angeles Times was criticizing the head coach of Bowling Green in 1987 for screwing up a quarterback decision. Everyone cares if you screw one up at Georgia. So yeah, I think these are really good points that you made here. And I don't hear many people talking about Dan Mullen over Kirby Smart in totality. We did a segment on this. The video is still very fresh on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. If you look in that late kick playlist, you'll find it. I did one, Dan Mullen versus Kirby Smart. Just heads up, who's better? Did one pretty recently, and I didn't think there was much debate in it, but I also said it's not settled in stone. Dan Mullen could certainly make a move here, but there have to be some changes on his end too. Raquel asks, are you a 285 guy or a 7585 guy? This is For those of you unfamiliar, if you've never driven through Atlanta or around Atlanta, 285 is the perimeter. It's kind of the bypass. Seventy-five, eighty-five takes you right through downtown going north, south. 20 goes east, west. I have been a 285 guy um, in the past couple of years. Now, when I was growing up as a kid, I always wanted to see the big buildings. So I would beg my mom or dad, whoever was driving, let's go through downtown. Easy to say when you're in the backseat. Recently, I've been driving back and forth from Nashville to Columbus a lot. And so i had been using 285, but then COVID happened and everyone stayed home. And you would not believe, even at like six o'clock in the evening, seven o'clock in the evening, you would not believe how easy it's been to get straight through 7585 downtown, never even hardly hitting the brakes. So recently, Raquel, I've been taking the more scenic route and going straight through downtown. Dan, up next, recently the Big Ten Conference Commissioner mentioned moving the Big Ten title game away from Indianapolis to more of a rotating event. Part of the reason is to add more interest to the game and see if they can make money getting stadiums to buy it for a year. I understand the second part, money is money, but the idea the game is falling flat might have more to do with the East just being better right now. What are your thoughts? I so agree with this. Listen, sometimes... People who make these business decisions, they live in a different world than you do, Dan. The world you live in is one where you really couldn't care less where the game's being played, you care about the game. That's how I feel, you feel, that's how most of us feel. Well, when you're talking about bidding contracts with the city of Minneapolis or Chicago or Green Bay to get this game, then you start to live in a different world and you start to justify this by saying, well, maybe this will bring more eyeballs. Not a single additional eyeball maybe outside of the host city, not a single additional eyeball is going to watch Ohio State versus Wisconsin because it's being played in Soldier Field instead of Lucas Oil Stadium. I think it's what it's still called in Indianapolis. No one outside of the people in the host city care about that. What they care about is the quality of the game. And you mentioned in your question, I had to cut it short, you said the SEC has just kept it parked in Atlanta for decades now. That seems to work out okay for them. Yeah, that's because the game's normally competitive. You're right. The game is normally competitive. And that's why no one really cares what building it's played in. They care about the game. Tyler. Next up, I am an Ohio State fan, and our most significant criticism of Clemson is that the ACC is really weak. Yet whenever I see Clemson fans on Twitter, they always claim the same about the Big Ten. This got me thinking, which conference is stronger in your opinion? How strong is the Big Ten as a conference set aside from any other conference? How specifically does it compare to the ACC? Tyler, the Big Ten is significantly better than the ACC right now. At the top, at the mid levels, they're better. If you want to do it like this, and this is the way that I choose to, just take the conferences and seed the teams. Ohio State's your number one in the Big Ten. Clemson's your number one in the ACC. They're equals, they cancel each other out. Then what do you have? Okay, in some order, Penn State and Michigan and Wisconsin, those are your two, three, four in the Big Ten. Who's your two, three, four in the ACC? Because the Big Ten product there, regardless of what order you're putting these teams in, they're probably seven-point favorites over any combination of a 2-3-4 from the ACC over the last several years. So to me, this is not even worth debating all that much. Big Ten by a significant margin. OJ is next up. Has social media and tweeting recruits, not recruits, just recruits, impacted college-bound kids looking to boost their local or national profile? And do you think it ever sways where some of them land? The social media does. I don't think fans impact you positively, but I think social media departments at universities and them putting out quality products like, for instance, LSU did last year, I don't think that hurts at all. Tweeting recruits from fans, I hope that's not swaying anyone. Actually, the only sway that I think happens from you, a fan, tweeting a recruit is if, you know, I've seen rival fans create burner twitter accounts to pretend like they are fans of their rivals and they'll just harass a recruit making the rival fan base look bad most of the time kids figure that out but maybe not always so maybe that's how you sway a kid but just remember the six most important words in all of college football fandom i will preach it from now until the end of eternity just say no to tweeting recruits for those of you in the back for those of you who are on the lawnmower park it for a second, turn it off. Let's say those six words together. Just say no to tweeting recruits. If you want to do something bold, go peel the tag off your mattress, go to a restaurant, buy a water, pour it out, fill it up with a fountain drink. Just don't tweet recruits. There's no what if, there's no what about, under no circumstances do you need to be tweeting recruits ever. Your life will be better. Their life will be better. Everyone's life will be better. Just say no to tweeting recruits. I hope I haven't been unclear. Next up, Wesley, question about Alabama last year. Hypothetically, Alabama's strength and conditioning program, if they hadn't lagged behind other programs and thus more key players were on the field, not injured, could they have beaten LSU and won the national title? If so, how would that have changed the perception of what LSU did? Well, the second part is pretty self-explanatory. I mean, there's a wide gap between having a great team like LSU did last year, transcendently great and not winning a championship. They got that championship until the end of time. Think about how different you'd feel if you were LSU right now. Talked about this before. And you had a close loss to Alabama. You never end up going to Atlanta to play for the SEC title. And somehow you get left out of the playoff. And then you watch Joe Burrow leave. And you watch Joe Brady leave. And you watch all that talent leave to the NFL draft. But you don't have a championship in your back pocket. Yeah, there's a a, a world's difference. Between scenario A and scenario B. For Alabama, yeah, they could have. It's hypothetical, like you said, in nature. I guess my question would be if you had injuries reduced, are you reducing the injury at quarterback along with that? Because, I mean, it's one thing to get back Dylan Moses. It's one thing for DJ Dale to be fully healthy for a year at defensive tackle. Is Dylan Moses going to be 100%? Because remember, he had to come back from an injury even to play in the LSU game last year. That was the first game back from injury. So yeah, if you could guarantee me 100% health at quarterback, yeah, they would have had a good shot. I still don't know that they would have you know, ultimately won the prize. A lot of stuff has to go your way even when you're healthy. But yeah, they would have, they would have had a shot. All right, uh, let's toss it to an ad break right quick. We got a really good one on the other side of this. It's Jeff, and Jeff is asking about head coaches, not what they say publicly. How do head coaches feel about other head coaches off the record? It's juicy, and that's what we're going to do right after this. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential?
0: And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got to ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. Get your quote today at progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust progressive progressive casualty insurance company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: All right. This is a good one right here. This one's from Twitter, by the way, at late kick Josh on Twitter. I appreciate you guys for following me. And if you haven't already do that, it's also free as is everything I ask you to do. So Jeff asks, how do head coaches view other head coaches behind the scenes? Do they look at a program and say, with those resources, how is that guy not winning? Or do they look at someone and say, hey, he's a great recruiter, but he can't coach his way out of a wet paper bag. Yes, they do this. But what I have found is the assistant coaches are the ones much more likely to trash other assistant coaches or head coaches than the head coaches themselves are. The head coaches see the sport from a bigger picture perspective. And they have an understanding of how big the plate is. Basically, what that means is, if you see a head coach struggling to win at a place where you think they should be winning, you may look at it and say, he's terrible. He's an underachiever. They need to get him out of there. It's insane that he can't win with that kind of talent and resources. And maybe even some assistant coaches may say that. But other head coaches look at it, and the way they see it is, I wonder if their fundraising mechanisms are working properly. I wonder if he's getting pushback on his budget that he presents. I wonder if they've got staff numbers to the degree that he wants to have internally. Is their quality control department where it needs to be? You know, are they dragging their feet behind the scenes on keeping facility upgrade enhancements and all pushed along? Or is he having trouble with his academic support? Uh, is mental health an issue with some of his players compliance Is the compliance department working hand-in-hand? All of these things assistant coaches don't really have to worry about. So to even some assistant coaches, it looks a lot more cut and dry than it does to a head coach. The head coaches, you rarely get them trash-talking each other, even off the record. There's an ultra-tight fraternity where they may share that kind of information. Of course, there are exceptions here. But by and large, the assistant coaches, they have a field day with this. The head coaches they see it a little bit different. Everyone sees this though, those five-star reviews as we move on. Thank you so much for those. And if you already forgot from when I asked you the first time, I humbly ask once more. Five-star reviews, they are worth their weight in gold. And thank you so much for those. We continue here. AJ, in the current FBS ecosystem, the group of five conferences are at a major disadvantages. In the 2020 signing class, only four four four-star recruits signed to group of five schools and it's currently the same in the next cycle fast forward to next year when name image and likeness goes into place what chances do g5s have for some schools they only play one power five each season and it may not even be nationally televised i'm currently of the opinion there needs to be major changes to the overall system because if things proceed like i believe they will g5 schools will become irrelevant aj what are the changes this is my answer now aj what are the changes Because in my opinion, you're talking about changes needing to be made. I already think G5s are propped up to a degree higher than the market naturally has dictated. I'm not giving you my take here. My take is I love G5 games. I watch dozens and dozens and dozens of them per year. But I'm a football junkie, so I watch it all. If there's not broad interest in the G5 product, which there is not, what are you going to do to fix the sport where it's level? It, it is not now. It never will be, I don't think. This is why I have been a big fan of getting rid of the illusion that these two entities are playing the same game. They're not. Power 5 football and G5 football, they're playing the same sport. They're not playing the same game. Two different things here. Harold asks, Do you think college players may decide to play their senior year instead of going to the draft early if they're making money while playing college ball? Now, at first, I didn't read this the right way, Harold. But then I thought about it and I said, oh, wait, I see what he's saying here. See, what I thought he was asking is, since these players are making money in college, are they just going to skip their senior year more often? No, that's not what he's asking. What Harold's asking is, with name, image, and likeness, some of these guys are going to be able to earn a lot of money in college The ones that would previously have been on the fence about leaving early for the draft, could the fact that they have a lot more money in their pocket make them stay in college one more year? And the answer, Harold, is yes. I think that's absolutely a possibility. I think it's a fascinating concept. And perhaps it's another unintended positive benefit of name, image, and likeness. Now, we've gone over this in depth on Late Kick Live this last Thursday or Sunday. I think it was the Sunday show. Yeah. I encourage you to go look at that. I encourage you to go to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel and look at my interview I did with Tiki Barber, the social distance interview. We went in depth on it in that feature as well about how a lot of folks, and I assume some of you fit this description, because I used to be like this. A lot of folks are scared that once you start putting money in players' pockets from name, image, likeness, most people actually don't view it like that. They just say once you start paying players, then it ruins the sport. It doesn't. I'm telling you it doesn't for many different reasons. And so I would encourage you to go watch those two features on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. It dispels, I think, a lot of the myths around this. It's not going to ruin the sport, guys. It's not even going to ruin it as you know it. I think in a lot of ways it may improve it in ways that you could never have imagined. Aaron, next up. I noticed where you ranked Missouri as the 12th best job in the SEC, which I think is fair. My question is, What would be the high water mark for Missouri if Eli Drinkwitz can maintain his in-state recruiting momentum? St. Louis is very fertile, especially if you include East St. Louis. Plus, they're in the only FBS team in the whole state. Could they exceed, let's say, South Carolina in the next three years with the right coach? I think the main problem is an apathetic fan base. What are your thoughts? Aaron, keep in mind now, when I'm talking about ranking these jobs, that's what I was doing. I was ranking the jobs, not the programs. Yeah, Missouri could overtake South Carolina as a program fairly easily. We're talking about overtaking them as a job. That apathy you just described, that's no small deal. That's a big deal. That matters in the context of a job. And I just don't know if Missouri, you know, even at their best, people down here view Missouri as as close to Canada as it is to Florida. Uh, geographically, it actually may be or very close to it, but it's just in another world to a lot of people down here. And the bottom line is, if you're South Carolina, you're always going to be way closer to the most precious commodity the sport has to offer, which is geographical talent beds. And you're talking about St. Louis and Kansas City there. And yes, they have some good players that come out of those areas, but it's not New Orleans. (laughs) It's not Atlanta. It's not Charlotte by any stretch. And so I don't know what changes, because fundamental changes would have to happen in order to vault Missouri up several spots on those rungs of the ladder of best jobs in the SEC. But I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that you could eclipse certainly the programs that I had them listed behind. Jack is next up. What would it take for Bryce Young to beat out Mac Jones as Alabama quarterback? I've got a fear that if he doesn't start this year and Mac Jones has a solid year and doesn't enter the draft... He'll be gone via the transfer route. Jack, I don't think that's going to happen, and I think you'll see Bryce Young play this year. Now, speaking to someone uh, in the last month, they do not believe he's overtaking Mac Jones for the starting spot at Alabama, at least early in the year. Now, having said that, I think he's going to play, and I think he's going to play a pretty good deal because he's going to be too good to keep off the field, and I think that they'll find the right balance there, and who knows how it shakes out. Injuries, COVID, who in the world knows, but I think it'll work out the way it has to work out to where one or both of those guys, let me, let me rephrase, where Bryce Young or Bryce Young and Mac Jones are both still there next year. Next up, I was listening to the podcast and you were talking about how it's a variable about how many teams should get a chance or deserve to get a chance for the college football playoff. Well, how would you feel about a national championship that's dependent on who the committee determines can compete. In other words, the committee would determine how many teams get in that given year. It's a lot to put on the shoulders of the committee, but I was curious what you thought about it. So I put this out on Twitter earlier today, generated a lot of conversation. Now, let's understand this is impossible for several reasons. So we understand that now. We're venturing into hypothetical land, pure fantasy. It's fun to talk about. It sparked a lot of conversation, so, I think what you would say here is we're taking teams that qualify for elite status, and however many of them there are at the end of the year, that's how big the playoff field's gonna be. If there are nine of them, if there are two of them, that's how big the playoff field's gonna be. Again, someone out there, as sure as I am talking about this, is saying, that's not possible. I know it's not possible. That's why I said it's impossible. Just bear with me. We're having fun. It's what we do here. We haven't even started camp yet, we're just having fun. What would elite be? That was my question on Twitter. How would you define elite? And what I think you'd find is if you defined elite properly, most years you'd struggle to get four teams. That's why I'm not one of many reasons, why I'm not in favor of expanding the playoff. In the real world, I'm not in favor because I don't think that you have any year where you have six or seven or eight elite teams. And I think that the end of the season playoff should be reserved for teams that fit that category. No auto bids. I just want the best in, but I only want elite teams at the table. And I I know that goes against what some of you believe the playoffs should be, and that's fine. We can agree to disagree. But I think if we defined elite and then only took teams that met that qualification in this hypothetical world, it would prove the point that rarely do we even have four of them that are elite by the end of the year. Next up, Colin asks, would it be beneficial for an offensive coordinator to go back to power football and run something like a no-huddle wishbone? Not only would it take advantage of smaller linebackers, but using the wishbone would always minimize the amount of time that an opposing team would potentially have for a high-scoring offense to be on the field. It's fun in theory to think about, Colin, but here's what you got to also consider. What are your goals as a program? I assume you're talking about contending programs, top 20 programs. How do you sell that concept to your fans? How do you sell the administration on it? How do you sell recruits on it? Because here's what you got to think about. You may think to yourself, oh, we don't have to have elite five-star receivers to run this offense. That's true. But see, here's the thing. Elite recruits kind of flock together with other elite recruits. And when you're not recruiting elite offensive guys, That means by default, your recruiting classes aren't going to be ranked high and the elite defensive guys that you need are probably going to look at that and say, well, they're not on par with these other teams I have an offer from. And so all of a sudden you turn into what Georgia Tech was under Paul Johnson. Didn't even care about recruiting. We'll just go find whoever's left over and, you know, we'll try to make the best of it because we're going to run the triple option and we play a different brand of football. I don't think it's able to be sold at a high caliber program. Next up, Matthew I'm a Nebraska fan born in 1990. My entire career as a college football fan has consisted of witnessing the slow and painful death of a once proud program. After three decades as a power, how did Nebraska decay into a cellar dweller? I'm old enough to remember that 11-2 season when it was a disappointment. Now we can't even make a bowl game. Other programs like Bama, Penn State, and Notre Dame have had dry spells, but they always bounce back. What happened to Nebraska? Can we ever recover? Well, here's what happened. Nebraska, under Tom Osborne, was revolutionary in many ways. They were doing things that other people just weren't doing yet offensively. Think Chip Kelly in Oregon, same principle. They weren't in a place where there was a ton of talent all over the state. They weren't a place where you necessarily had the most elite of elite players nationally flock to, but they were doing something so new that other people couldn't keep up with them. And so for a time, it was theirs. But then the problem at Nebraska was slowly the sport adjusts and then other people start stealing those principles. And then once it's no longer revolutionary and once the competitive landscape balances out, a sort of natural order is restored. And in this sport, natural order is teams with access to the best talent generally win more. And that means teams in the South and that means teams out on the West Coast. That's the general rule. And that was the problem. You were never going to keep doing things at Nebraska that no one else was doing. If you're doing something that works and no one else is doing it, you won't be the only one doing it for long. So that's what happened to Nebraska. And it's just impossible to stay on the cutting edge forever. Then you talk about coaching turnover and instability and all that other stuff. But really, I think that's what precipitated a lot of it. Next up is Will. You talked about the 4 Auburn team not having a chance to win a title Any chance for a segment on what a four-team playoff would have looked like in some of the BCS years, like 07, 2011, 2012? I feel like there would have been several years with two SEC teams in a playoff field of four. Will, this is a good one. I'm actually saving that for the future. I've got something I'm working on there that loosely centers around this one. So I'm tabling that one. Put a bookmark in it. Matthew is next up. Do you like how non-conference games are mostly all in September? Or would you like more non-conference games to be played throughout the season? I don't really have a preference either way, Matthew. I don't have a huge problem with how anyone does it right now. Butch is next up. Could you talk about the future of North Carolina? Well, they're in a wide open conference right under Clemson. I mean, it's wide open behind Clemson. So that means it's a wide open opportunity. I think they are capitalizing right now on a very underrated recruiting region, the Carolinas, specifically their own home state. They landed a big name like Tony Grimes from the D.C. area. Uh, They got quarterback figured out currently with Howell. They got quarterback figured out in the future, you would think, with Drake May already committed. They've got organizational structure figured out. They got a really good head coach right now that has cast a vision that that assistant coaching staff is carrying out to perfection. Now, you got to see it repeated year over year, but good early indications. I think they're going to be a problem for quite a while. Jackson is next up. Here at Oregon, we watched Justin Herbert and Brady Breeze take home the offensive and defensive awards at the Rose Bowl. I and many of my friends took an extra measure of pride in the fact that they were both from the state of Oregon. We watched them play in high school. We followed their recruitment. We followed them on social media. Now we got to celebrate their accomplishments. Should a coach look at the home crowd and hometown motivation and factor that into recruiting offers? This is a really good question. There are two distinct schools of thought here. Both of them have upsides. I think both of them have some downsides. So you've got the approach that I have seen Georgia take recently. And that's sort of, forget about state lines. Don't put so much of an emphasis on state lines. Let's just go get the best of the best if they want to come here, regardless of where they live. Then you got the other school of thought that's, we're going to place a premium on locking down our state. We're going to prioritize homegrown kids because we know that that pride that they have of being able to play for the logo of that home school, it's a critical intangible that you can't quantify but it's really important to have on the field, it's important to have in the locker room. Now, with the first approach, just go get the best wherever they are, you maximize your access to talent. But you find that you expose yourself sometimes to more locker room issues if things go sideways. Because if things go sideways and it's not ideal and you're not headed to a 15-0 season, guys aren't necessarily there with that hometown pride factor in the back of their minds. Therefore, they don't respect that logo as much for the same reasons as a homegrown kid would. And if things aren't going the way they want them to, you're a lot more likely to have some dissension because they don't appreciate that logo like a hometown kid would. Now. The second aspect is you may have a locker room full of guys. If you prioritize home state kids, you got a locker room full of guys willing to go over a cliff for you and for that logo. But you may limit your options and you may expose yourself to, if you have in-state cycles that are just down, where can you go? You haven't established the pipeline out of your state. And so you may ultimately limit the ceiling of your roster. So you see here... It's a delicate balance. And in Oregon, obviously, you know, Mario Cristobal has to go out of state. It's nice if you get some in-state kids. He's got to go out of state. So in a lot of ways, I don't think that this, it it doesn't factor in as much with Oregon because you know you have to do it every year as it does down south a little bit more where teams have the option. If they want to, they don't have to leave their state and they could get competitive classes every year. It's been really interesting because it's been a talking point down here is the reason that I mentioned Georgia. Because at first, a lot of Georgia folks were happy that Kirby Smart was going national. But then all of a sudden, you got a lot of the Georgia kids that go elsewhere. And then they're left saying, man, maybe we should have focused on the state more. And it's it's one way or the other. You're never going to please everyone. So it's really fascinating to watch. David, next up. David asks, what are the top five college football rivalry games? Michigan has lost 15 of the last 16 to Ohio State. Bottom of the top five to me until they win again. All right, so that's how David sees it. Here's how I list them. Iron Bowl is number one, and that's really just because I grew up in the South. Michigan, Ohio State is number two. Always respected it. I think it matters more nationally than the Iron Bowl because I think Michigan and Ohio State are both national brand names. Whereas in the Iron Bowl, Alabama's a national brand. Auburn's more of a regional brand. That's the way I always looked at that, even in the South. Texas, Oklahoma is my number three. Army, Navy is my number four but I want to talk about number five. You guys aren't going to believe this, but I am dead serious about this. I have felt this way since I was a kid and I first saw a replica of the trophy. Iowa versus Minnesota is in my top five college football rivalries because the Floyd of Rosedale, hear me now, is the greatest trophy in all of sports, not just college football. Floyd of Rosedale is the greatest trophy in all of sports. I did research a long time ago I always bought all those college football history books. And one of the first really vivid stories I remember about the history of college football was about the Floyd of Rosedale trophy. And if you don't know the story, it is great cliff notes time. The year is 1934, Minnesota is blowing out Iowa and they roughed up a tailback for Iowa. His name was Ozzie Simmons. He was one of the few, very few black players in college football at the time. And they roughed him up pretty bad. So Obviously, Iowa doesn't take too kindly to it. The next year, Iowa's governor, name was Clyde Herring, he goes on record and says, if the officials stand for any rough tactics like Minnesota used last year, I'm sure the crowd will not. And basically, he incited a riot. He said, hey, we're coming on that field if that happens again. So then Minnesota's attorney general gets involved You think things are crazy right now, don't you? This was in 1935. This was in 1935, people. The AG in Minnesota accuses the Iowa governor of thuggery. That's right, thuggery. Mid-30s thuggery. That's what we have going on here. And his quote is, Your remark that the crowd at the Iowa-Minnesota game will not stand for any rough tactics is calculated to incite a riot. It's a breach of your duty as governor and evidence of unsportsmanlike, cowardly, and contemptible frame of mind, 1935. So then, how do we get the trophy? So the Minnesota governor, his name was Floyd Olson, he's trying to calm the situation. So the day of the game, he gets in touch with the Iowa governor, and he says, if you're seriously thinking you got a chance to win this, I'm going to bet you a Minnesota prize hog against an Iowa prize hog that Minnesota wins today. Loser has to deliver the hog in person to the winner, as is usually the case. Any kind of hog for hog trade, you guys know how that goes. Except my bet through a reporter, he said, "You're going to get odds because Minnesota raises better hogs than Iowa." My best and personal regards and condolences. Minnesota wins the game 13 to six, and then here's where things really got interesting and took a turn for the worse. Uh, this is straight from Wikipedia. An Iowa social crusader named Virgil Case, most social crusaders are named Virgil, by the way, he swore out a criminal warrant in Des Moines against the governor, alleging that the bet violated Iowa gambling laws. Case also argued that the governors were guilty of violating federal gambling laws because the pig had to be placed into interstate commerce when Herring made good on the bet, but the U.S. attorney fortunately who had a life declined to prosecute by the way that uh social crusader i can think of a number of very high profile sports media types that fit that description perfectly i don't think i need to be any more specific for you guys to use your own imaginations and know exactly who i'm talking about there so floyd of rosedale he may be a pig but floyd of rosedale is the goat college football trophy and it's the greatest trophy in all of sports and I watch the game every year don't care what the records are just to see that little pig get carried around the field after the team wins and gets to hoist him on their shoulders and if any of you out there have a replica Floyd of Rosedale you I don't know what the address is you need to send it to you look it up you can find 24-7 sports home address in Brentwood it's pretty easy you send me that replica trophy you and I are going to have a conversation off the air about how I can properly compensate you next up Sebastian what are your thoughts on Maryland football why can't they just put something together loads of talent in the area seems like there's a quarterback graveyard though multiple coaching staffs that have come in to turn the program around and they just haven't been able to do more well I think the first thing to watch is name image and likeness with the Under Armour connection it could be right in their wheelhouse but Mike Loxley being there as the head coach is something else that could be in their wheelhouse. Now, he's got to follow through on the name of the game with him, which is recruiting. Uh, He's got a little bit of grace period right now to build his roster. They got Tua's brother, Talia Tangavailoa. Got to see if he's going to be eligible this year. One of those pending waiver situations. You just don't know who's going to wake up on the right side of the bed in Indianapolis and decide to rule on that. I think they're going to get a little more pass happy this year. You look at their roster, 13 scholarship wide receivers. If that offense starts to click this year, got to get offensive line in shape first. And I like the moves they made, by the way, in the offseason, getting a lot bigger on offensive line. I think that offense, if it starts to click a little bit this year, recruiting takes care of itself, then we start to see positive results. At least, you know, the heart monitor goes beep, 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 instead of the flat line that has been Maryland football for a little while now. Daniel, next up, do you think Justin Fuente is the guy For my Virginia Tech Hokies, what are they missing that's keeping them out of the race? We got a great, hungry fan base, hostile home field advantage. Well, my opinion on uh, Justin Fuente is still undeveloped. I don't know if he's the man, uh, which in and of itself is probably negative by default. Offensive identity has not been there to this point. I don't know what they're about offensively. Uh, they had now have turnover on defense with bud foster gone so i don't really know what they will be defensively long term roster turnover has been a bit of an issue there so i guess three letters idk i don't know that's the best way i can describe virginia tech right now you're right about the hostile home field advantage hungry fan base you got those boxes covered that's not going anywhere they are one of the reasons why there's a large vacuum right behind Clemson in the ACC right now. That's just begging for someone to fill it. That should be Virginia Tech, but it's not happening right now. Next up, Adam. With Notre Dame now more than ever likely to permanently become an ACC football team, should the ACC look at dropping a team like Boston College or Wake Forest for teams like UCF or possibly my former college, UAB? Uh, Listen, Adam, don't let 2020 fool you. Notre Dame's not joining any conference anytime soon. And unfortunately for you, uh, because it appears you want it this way, this is not the English soccer deal where they dump the worst teams and add new ones every year, though that may be fun. That's not the way those decisions get made. So ACC is going to be ACC for a little while, I think. Speaking of, Jansen next up. Georgia Tech is a team I find interesting. With Jeff Collins inheriting the remains of the triple option, what can we reasonably expect? from that team the next few years. I think by next season, I expect them to have a roster capable of competing for the Coastal. I think their recruiting will be at a level this time next year that's turning a lot of heads. I don't think there'll be any triple option residue or Paul Johnson residue left on them by 2022, maybe even sooner. Zach is next up. What are the arguments for and against paying players during their college careers? What's your personal opinion? As I mentioned, covered it extensively Thursday night. Or Sunday night. I'm on board with name, image, and likeness now. I'm not on board with revenue sharing because I believe when it comes to the pie, uh, the revenue pie that includes television money and merchandise sales from licensing and uh, gate numbers, I think that those dollars are generated far more from brands than individual players. I'm not for that revenue sharing model. I am wholeheartedly for players being able to cash in on their name, image, and likeness, because there are individuals out there whose name, image, and likeness, which they own, uh, merit value, and they should be able to capitalize on it, and I do believe that. I also believe we've been on a long time, so we got to wrap it up here. Really appreciate you guys listening. The five-star reviews, I ask one more time, really mean a lot. We thank you for those. If you want to get in touch with us, joshpate706 at gmail.com, at latekickjosh on Twitter, or you can comment I leave a section below every episode of Late Kick Live on YouTube, 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. Subscribe to that, by the way, where you can comment and leave a question for the podcast. So until next time, for Producer Tani, I'm Josh Bate. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and God bless.